Okay, friends, we're starting off today's class. I'm going to have the great honor of introducing Rabbi Braha Jaffe, who serves as an associate rabbi at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale in Bronx, New York. Go Riverdale. I'm about to go visit soon. She is a dynamic and thoughtful educator who loves teaching Hebrew or English and inspiring others to learn. She has taught many to learn Lain and is the voice of Jofa, uh, Megillah Esther and Megillah Ruth Apps. Some of her favorite pastimes are kickboxing and reading books to her grandchildren over Zoom. Rabani Bracha lives in Riverdale, New York with her husband, Martin, and we are delighted, delighted to have her speak today. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Hello, everybody. I see that most people are off camera, which is fine, but I'd be so glad if you wanted to be on camera. That adds to the experience and you can be in whatever state you want. It's okay. But the other thing I wanted to ask is that people would be comfortable unmuting when I ask you and then participate and give some feedback. And I'm going to start it off that way. I call this class old morning versus new morning as relating to the period of time that we are in today, which is called the three weeks. Tonight actually is Rosh Chodesh Av when we'll be starting the nine days and the three weeks begins with the fast day, which was Sunday a week and a half ago, and then ends with the fast day. It's book ended by fast days, yay, <laughs> which is Tisha B'Av at the end. But before we begin, because it is the saddest time of year in the Jewish calendar, I wanted to ask people here if they would be comfortable sharing if they have ever experienced mourning if they've ever lost someone and gone through the experience of funeral, of shiva, perhaps shloshim or the year. I would ask people here, whether you're on camera or off camera, or whether you're only by audio, <clears throat> if you would unmute, I'd be glad to call on you. Jessica. Hi. Hi, Jessica. Thanks. Thanks Hi, for being Robin. the first to jump in. <laughs> um, yes, if you tell me to unmute, I will unmute for you. Okay, you got it. So, so explain. So, tell me if you've experienced some kind of mourning. So, I perhaps am not the best person to be the first volunteer because I'm very fortunate that I have not really experienced true mourning, um, and I feel very grateful that I'm able able to answer in that way. Mm -hmm. um, have you experienced any kind, even if it's not someone that you set shiva for? A loss, a grandparent, or you know, maybe a friend, Loa Lane. Um, other than going through a divorce, and like oh, mourning. that's a type of mourning, absolutely. <laughs> mourning no, I, I agree I with you. And yeah, okay. that's the only time I can really feel uh, the the concept of grief really resonates with me. Yeah, I hear that, and Baruch Hashem, and I hope that it'll be a long time till you experience it. <laughs> but thank you so much for sharing that, and there'll be other opportunities to share something as we go along. But thank you, Jessica. Is somebody else perhaps on this call who has experienced a loss of a parent, a sibling, um, a spouse, Lawleno, a friend, a relative of any kind? If if you would unmute and share just a little bit, I would it would be a great way to start off this session. Sarah, I see that you put on your video. Are you comfortable sharing something? Are you comfortable unmuting? I know it's complicated with the video and the audio. Sarah, would you? Thank you. I appreciate that you're in person on the video. Can you share something about that? Um, yes. I, I mean, I lost both of my parents um, mm -hmm. some years ago um, and was not in, in, in a community that observed traditional Shiva. So there were abbreviated there were abbreviated rituals and mm -hmm. a very very long secular <laughs> emotional process right so i actually want to speak also about the emotional process it's not only the halachic the jewish law so that's okay like nobody should feel they have to apologize for what they did or didn't do grief is grief and then your journey so can you say a little maybe a little bit about the arc of your journey sarah um, well, I, it was different, very different for each parent. So, uh -huh. of course, it's going to be different for uh, for each relationship. Um, my relationship with my father was very distant, and um, 
so it was a it was an abbreviated process for right, my mother. Right. It was a matter of years. It was she was the center of the of the family. She held wow. a certain place, and everyone was sort of arrayed around her. And so when she died, then it was uh, part of the process was the entire family kind of rearranging wow. our relationships with one another. Oh my watching, goodness. watching different family members take on certain functions that she played in the family system um, and others just, you know, when other, other functions Thank that you. she That's, went away. <laughs> that literally gave me goosebumps to hear that. That's such a beautiful way to describe it and resonates with me. And did you I feel, yeah, go on. I, I think the other thing that I would say is that, yeah. that, um, that over the years I have many, had many, many non-Jewish friends express envy of the wow. Jewish morning yeah. rituals that they have had nothing like that no kind of right. recognition of sort of the depth or the need for community or anything else around that process beautiful I really appreciate you saying that because that actually is a great segue I really really appreciate that um I lost my father Actually, his yard site was yesterday, just finished. 27 years ago, he was age 60, and I lost two siblings, both of them younger than I am. So I have experienced grief, and I, I have always experienced grief as some sort of arc, mostly most intense at the beginning, and then over time has shifted, changed, perhaps lessened, or perhaps I've just been able to function in the world better over time. Whether you're closer to one or not, that's the way I see it. And Sarah, you're saying that it also is a journey and a process as you watched people shift and take over, but it wasn't the next day. It took a little bit of time. Is that Teo? I'm just wondering, it looks like Teo, but I'm not sure. Hi, Teo. Teo, I mean, we just have time for one more person. I don't know if you'd like to share anything. I know you've also gone through mourning. You don't have to, but we're just sharing what does it mean to feel mourning and perhaps what the arc feels like after um, after the person passed away, but no pressure if you don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to, that's okay. Yeah, it's fine, totally fine. So, um, and if you want to just feel free to unmute. How about you, Eddie? Did you want to unmute and say something? I'd be happy to hear. Yeah, I um, I lost my grandmother in 2019 and uh -huh. she was one of my best friends. And uh -huh. I, it, like, it really, really hit me really hard. Um, especially because I got really close to my grandmother um, as an adult because uh, she was in Mexico and I was here and I couldn't see her. So I got closer to her as an adult and she passed away in 2019 and it, it was really, really hard. Right. Uh, and and the, the arc is that like, it's, it's extremely intense in the beginning and you're almost like shocked. Like you don't know like what to feel at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, then, Numb almost. Yes. And then, um, um, uh, on in April, uh, closer to March, on uh, May, sorry, I lost my uncle, my mom's brother, who I was also really close to. Wow. Um, and, and like, a young person to have losses. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds and, like it was really, yeah, meaningful and hard. Yeah. And, and it was really hard too. Yeah. Yeah. In different ways, right? You different relationships, right? So I don't know if everybody would agree, but it feels to me, in general, again, some people have crashes, you know, a few years later, but in general, the grief feels, as you pointed out, so overwhelming at the beginning, you almost don't even know how to put a name on it or feel. I still remember when my father died, which was very sudden, he stepped off an airplane and died in the airport of deep vein thrombosis. So it was no warning, but I remember standing in the airport. Uh, he had just come off a plane from Israel and I was living in Israel and my mother came back with his body for the funeral. And I remember standing in the airport. It was the first time in my life that I realized that an emotional feeling can affect you physically. Like I honestly felt if I didn't get a hold of myself, I would faint just from the overwhelming sadness and shock, as you put it. All right. So I want, I want to thank those courageous people who stepped in and said something. And I think even just with this small group, we've already seen that some things are similar. Jessica, I'm so appreciating that you started us off and really grateful that you haven't tasted of that kind of grief yet. And, but we, even we have all had 
different experiences, even within our own different mornings, we've had different experiences each person has expressed. Um, and yet there is some sort of arc that does feel like it is most intense at the beginning. Now, Sarah, you pointed out that you have non-Jewish friends who are jealous or envious or appreciate so much the Jewish ritual. So what I want to right away start off by saying that the most well-known, I think, is Shiva. Even to people who are not observant or orthodox, they usually know the word. Um, the word Shiva actually in Hebrew Shiva is seven. And it comes from the fact that there are traditionally, in most cases, not all, um, when there's a holiday, it, 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 it terminates it abruptly. But in general, people sit Shiva, what we call sitting Shiva. It's become a term, a terminology for seven days. The first day is the funeral, so it's not a full day. And the last day you get up in the morning, but overall it's seven days. And then the next period is a little bit lessening of the stringencies. And that is being, you know, not sitting on a low chair, which if people are familiar with that, sitting on a low chair, um, having people come and visit and wearing different shoes, what we call Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur shoes, not leather, and other refraining from things that bring us joy. There's not a lot of washing going on. I mean, if you're dirty, you can wash, but we don't take showers or baths for pleasure at all. And, and many other, uh, many other restrictions and if we think just for a moment, just stopping on Shiva, and we think of Tisha B'Av, Tisha B'Av, for those who are familiar, it feels it feels similar. Now, on Tisha B'Av, we also fast. That's true. And fasting is its own category. So we'll talk about that afterwards. But we sit on low chairs at night and in the morning, if you can. I mean, if you can't, you don't have to. We don't wear regular shoes. We abstain from washing. Again, not if your hands got dirty, but we don't take showers and uh, leather shoes and um, there's no marital relations and there's no um, like lotion kind of a, there's a word for that. I can't see, but I don't know what's, it's um, anointing maybe or something with lotions. So we refrain from that. We don't put on perfume, things like that. So it feels in some ways very similar to the Shiva experience. And what I'm going to walk you through now is how it really is similar to the grieving process that we do, but it's exactly flipped. And I'm going to explain. We spoke about the fact that when we lose someone who was close to us, we immediately feel an overwhelming emotion, whatever that emotion is. There are many different emotions. I mean, honestly, you know, some people here may have felt relief in some ways because the person is either suffering so much or whatever. But in general, there is there's a feeling of loss, of sadness, could be coupled with other ones, could be complicated. But there's overwhelming emotion because it's happening right now. It just now happened. So that's so intense. But what happens when we're mourning something like the destruction of the temple, which happened thousands of years ago. How do we connect with that? I, I don't feel a sharp point in sense of loss because I didn't lose the temple. The temple wasn't a part of my everyday life. Now, I'm just going to show you a picture. Just a moment. Of people who actually were around at the time the temple, they are sitting on the ground mourning. They are, this is, I mean, it's not a photograph, it's a painting or a lithograph or something, but they are so sad that they sat Shiva when the temple was destroyed because it was fresh and new. And they thought Judaism was gone. They lost such a strong part, a central part of their lives. They couldn't imagine what their lives would be like without this centrality of Judaism at the temple. Now we know that the rabbis and their wisdom, the sages actually reinvented Judaism in some ways. And after the ex exile, after the first and the second temple, that actually the more after the second temple, they, they um, rekindled Judaism by shifting the focus from Jerusalem and the temple to having synagogues and to having Batemidrash, places of learning. We're, we're not going to talk about that, but that still is true. And that has its own beauty associated with it. What we're talking now is that our sages felt so strongly that we have to mourn the destruction of the temple and not just the destruction of the building, but the destruction of our closeness to God. The, the relationship with God felt much, much, much closer. In fact, the word korban, which is offering or what we call sacrifice, but really is an offering to God, which they did in the temple. And I don't want to debate whether we'll do that and if that'll happen in the future or if it'll all be vegetarian. But the word korban comes from the word karov, 
to be close. So when we had the temple, we felt that we had a much more direct line to God. There were priests, Kohanim, Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who actually on Yom Kippur was able to go into the holiest of holies. And there was, he had this, uh, the Choshen, the, the breastplate, which, which was a, a magical sort of way of communing with God and getting answers from God. So what we're mourning is this feeling of a direct connection to God. But our sages were very smart in another way. And they said, when you have a loss right now, you don't have to do anything extra to feel the grief. It's there. It's so palpable that we actually offer Shiva as a way to cocoon the people and to kind of wrap them in a little bit of social, uh, social kind of uh, cotton by, by allowing them to take a step back from regular life, to just be in their homes. They don't even have to speak. In fact, one of the laws of coming to a Shiva house, one of the customs, rules, whatever you want to call it, is that you don't speak until the mourner speaks. Some mourners are not even able to speak in their grief or because they don't know what to say or whatever it is. You take your cue from the mourner. <clears throat> so Shiva is actually coming to hold and to cocoon the mourner until the mourner has had a chance to a teeny weeny bit acclimate himself or herself or themselves to what it means to have to miss this person, to have this loss or, or more than one, you know, could be multiple losses in their life. And then it moves on to the next stage after they've been able to can, kind of take a breath and feel the warmth and comfort of community. Then it moves on to the next stage, which is called Shloshim. This is for everybody, for all, for mourner, for anybody, 30 days, which lessens the restrictions and one can go back to work, but there are other restrictions involved. And then I'm talking about joyful restrictions. And then it continues for parents onto a full year, meaning another 11 months. And that's called, that year is only, only for parents, but you can see that the, the halakha really beautifully mirrors where the person is in his or her stage in life. I know that when my sister was very, very, very close to when she passed away, I, I, I would just find myself breaking into sobs as I was walking outside. And then over time, that didn't happen as often. And I was able to just, I, my body, my, myself, somebody said it's like losing a limb, but learning to live with it. So when they wanted to bring us, the Jewish people, to the same state of feeling mourning, they said, well, it can't happen from one second to the next. And the Gemara, I'm going to read you a piece from the Gemara. The Gemara in Yivamot is having a discussion about whether a woman can remarry or marry during her mourning period, mourning when she lost someone, as opposed to during the nine days. And I'm not going to go into the halakha discussion, but look at what they say. Amar Rav Ashi, Rav Ashi said, Shani avelut hadasha me'avelut yishana. There's a different halakha regarding whether one can marry for new mourning when you have a relative who just passed away and old mourning such as the mourning over historic events, such as the destruction of the temple. And for whatever reason, there's more leniency in one as opposed to the other. And I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to go into that, but they coined the phrase old mourning versus new mourning. So that's where I want to take you through and show you how beautifully I set up a, a flow chart. I came from software before I became a rabbi. So I set up a kind of flow chart to show you how it's actually beautifully flipped. And Rav Soloveitchik, if people here have heard of him, who was a tremendous gadol and sage uh, rabbi of the previous century and was, um, uh, my father was a student of his. He was, a, he was I, I lived in Boston, he was in Boston. So I was able to hear him, actually hear his voice, attend his shirim. And he's the one who modeled this idea based on those short, small words in the Gemara and said, New morning versus old morning. And and this is how this is how he explains it. So I'm going to show you, share my screen again. And by the way, if there's any questions, please, please feel free to unmute and ask or raise your hand. It's really, or in the chat, whatever you want. I'm so happy to field any questions. The worst thing is if I'm saying something, people are like, huh? So please feel free to ask. So here we go. New morning. We just discussed it. The, the next stage, right after the burial, is Shiva, which is the most stringent of the restrictions. What the mourners sit on, sit on a low chair. They don't wear comfortable, supposedly, or they don't wear regular shoes. They don't actually leave the house unless they have to, to go to shul if they don't have a minion in their home, minion meaning a prayer quorum, 
or if one of the reasons you're allowed to leave is to go pay a shiva call to another mourner, actually, you're allowed to go to another shiva house, or to put up the tombstone, which in Israel is very often put up right after shiva. So I believe my brother, when my father passed away and he was buried in Israel, I believe my brother actually ended up going to the going to the place where they create tomb amounts of money. But there's very it's pretty strict. We don't, as I said, we don't take showers, we don't um or we don't take showers for pleasure at all. And we don't have marital relations. So things that bring joy, we don't even learn Torah because learning Torah brings joy. The next stage would be Shloshim, 30 days. That's another three weeks after the Shiva has concluded where the restrictions have lessened and we will go into what they are. And then there's a year of mourning. Now let's see what our sages did. They said, wait a minute, we have a model of mourning, but that model is for new mourning where the grief is so strong at the beginning. And what happens is that we have these restrictions, then we lessen and we lessen, but we need exactly the opposite. We need to start roll back time a few weeks before Tisha B'Av. Remember Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av, we commemorate as the day that both of the temples were destroyed. It's possible they were destroyed one day apart from each other, it's, but that's not the issue. Just one second. The issue is that we, we commemorate on the same day, Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the month of Av. As I said, tonight, tonight is Rosh Chodesh. It'll be the first day of Av. And in order to lead us into it, to get us ready for it, to get our emotional state ready, let's use the same model, but let's flip it. So it starts with a three-week period, what's called the three weeks, which started a week ago Sunday. And it started with a fast day. Then the restrictions get tighter and more stringent tonight, starting tonight, other than Shabbat. On Shabbat, we don't generally have restrictions. There's no public mourning on Shabbat, so we remove those. And then it culminates with Tisha B'Av. It culminates with Tisha B'Av. So just on this point, I want to take a pause and ask people, why do you think we start the, and end this this three-week period with fasting. We don't have, fasting is not part of new morning. I mean, there are other reasons to fast, like on Yom Kippur and others, but I'm talking about the three weeks. Any thoughts about why we might fast at the beginning and fast at the end? Why did our sages feel that they needed to add a layer of fasting to the morning period? Any thoughts, Rukama? I see you unmuted. Do you have a thought? Yes, I do. I'm very, um, I'm very, I'm very wedded to this thought which is we don't fast because we mourn, because mourners actually don't fast. We fast because we hope. Oh, beautiful. And Can so you say more about that? Behind the, fast is that? the idea is that the fasting will somehow create a reconciliation because the idea is that we're somehow separated from the divine and the fast is a way that you do that. Now myself, some people, when when they're um, upset, eat a lot. I don't, I stopped eating already. <laughs> but in this case, it's not about an emotional thing at all. It's about a hope that this sacrifice, a form of sacrifice will somehow reestablish the connection. That's beautiful. Like a tikkun. You've heard of tikkun olam, repairing the world. It yes. feels like you're saying this could be, that's a beautiful thought, Ruhama. I have a daughter, Ruhama, by the way, it's an unusual name. So I love seeing the name. <laughs> nice to meet another Ruhama. So that's a, that's a really nice thought. Any other thoughts of people, why we might fast? And by the way, just something that's just in, parenthetically, I've spoken to people who are not allowed to fast because they're diabetic or kidney stones, you know, there, there are different reasons or heart, whatever it is, there are many reasons why people might not be allowed to fast. Or even a, a woman who is uh, pregnant or nursing very often this year, for example, because the we actually commemorate these fast days one day late because they fall on Shabbat. And the only day we fast on Shabbat would be Yom Kippur. So this year, pregnant and nursing women really do not have to fast. So I always recommend that they find some other way to connect to the day of it being said something, but Nicholas, I see that you unmuted and you wanna add something? I love what Ruchama just said. I'm um, going along those lines. I mean, the way I understand fasting within Judaism is that we do it 
um, as a means of mourning, of course, what this is about. But we know that when Mashiach comes, it'll transform into something joyous. Mm-hmm. So is it mourning, not Hope. just... Yeah, connected to Beautiful. what she's... Not just for the temple, but for that we don't have Mashiach. We don't have those times yet. Not yet. I like that, that added word yet. Thank you, Nicholas. I want to add two thoughts. One by Dr. Ilana Steinhain. Anything she says is usually gorgeous. I always recommend listening to her if you have the opportunity. She says the purpose of a fast is both to pray for salvation, but also to get rid of distraction and privilege, which felt really connected for me to Uri Tzedek, and think about what we can do better in the world. Because, you know, when we're fasting, you feel different. I mean, some people fast better than others, but most people feel something a little yuckier, but they're thirsty or hungry, or just maybe have a headache or um, just more tired, more draggy, looking forward to eating, missing food. I mean, food is really a basic part of our existence and what we can do better in the world. And I feel like it's, it's a um, equalizer. It makes me think of the people who are not privileged and don't have enough food. And they probably suffer from hunger every single day. Maybe they have one meal a day, but I know that there are people. So to me, it's an amazing equalizer. Like when our stomachs are full and we're feeling good, we're happy, we're upbeat. We we don't necessarily think of, of others in the world who are suffering. We might, but but starting with fasting brings brings us down a peg, takes us down a notch, takes us down a level. And it also connects. You know, when you walk to Shul on Yom Kippur or Tisha B'Av, and you know, I mean, I try to fast all six fast days, but I know not everybody can or does. But when you see other people who are also in that kind of, you know, you know, that fasting look, it creates a connection. It's something that we're doing so that all day long, we will remember that there's something greater going on in the background, that we're commemorating something. It takes us a little bit out of our everyday life, which is why when I discuss with people who can't fast, so one person said, I don't listen to music that day. That was something we came up with. Somebody else said, I actually don't even exercise that day because exercising to me is a joyous, I'm not talking about somebody who needs to for physical therapy. We're not talking about that. Don't swim that day. Um, Somebody else said, I, I don't remember, but each person found when we were discussing a group, and I, I want to offer that to anybody who I know is either on the group now or will be listening to this later on. Think for yourself if for some reason fasting doesn't work for you, or if you can't, or you're not allowed to fast, find some other way to connect, to think about what Muhammad said about hope or what Nicholas said about not yet, we don't have the salvation. And one more thought, this is from David Lambert, a Hebrew Bible professor. Fasting in the Bible, this is so interesting, is like a hunger strike. It's a way of a human being saying to God, please change this or I refuse to eat. It's a way of getting at injustice in the world. And I want you to hold that thought because at the end, I want to bring it back in. So we've thought about why we start with fasting and end with fasting. I think you could imagine that we're all going to be, even if it's not only about mourning Ruhaman, I'm not. I think all of these ideas can coexist. I don't think there's only one reason for fasting. Certainly on Tisha B'Av, we connect over fasting. We, it adds to the feeling of down, a feeling down of, of, of um, taking away from our joy in eating and drinking during that day. And please, everybody, make sure you eat, especially drink before be- and stay in air conditioning as much as you possibly can. That's much more important than anything else today. There are Zoom options, so you don't absolutely have to go out if you don't want to. So, okay. I want to continue in the file. Okay. Nope. Here it is. Okay. Let's go now to the next slide that I prepared. Or let's compare how our sages did this, flipping the model of new morning and old morning. So remember, it's it's the opposite. So here I set it up. We're sorry, going back to this. The Shiva connects to Tisha B'Av. The Shloshim is like the nine days. The three weeks is like the year of morning. But here I set it up so that you can compare. We can together compare the customs and see what the, what our sages did, which I I just feel it was brilliant to take something that already works and then figure out a way to use it 
you know, don't reinvent the wheel. All they did was a tweak on it and flipping it. So they use the model of Shiva, no washing, no leather shoes, no talking frivolously. That's also, you don't sit around and just shoot the breeze. I mean, sometimes that happens, but it's, it's not about necessarily talking about, you know, Seinfeld. We try if possible, unless that person needs it. If that person needs it, we always go according to the mourner, but it's not about coming in and talking about the baseball scores. It's really about focusing on the loss. No studying Torah for joy. Somebody could study the laws of mourning if necessary. No perfumes or anointing. No marital relations. We sit on those stools. What do we do on Tisha B'Av? No washing, no leather shoes, no talking frivolously. In fact, we don't say hello to each other, which is also, I didn't put that in here, but there's something about not greeting each other, which is difficult. I remember I, I called someone, they said, you know, like I would answer, Rabbi Bracha here, which feels so off-putting actually, as opposed to saying, hi, how are you? That's a hard thing to not do on Tisha B'Av. But it's also in during Shiva, we usually don't say hello and goodbye. Uh, no studying Torah for joy on Tisha B'Av, no perfumes or anointing, no marital relations, sit on those. These are all exactly the same. And then we add no eating or drinking. Remember, this is the culmination. Here, it's the first step. Here, it's the last step. We've worked our way up from the bottom up here until we feel that feeling of grief. Okay, the Shloshim compares to the nine days. So no haircuts. Uh, there's no haircuts here either, which I didn't put in here but you're in your home and you don't get your haircut. No haircuts unless a friend has mentioned the need. If you look unkempt, like it could happen that you were supposed to get your haircut. That actually happened to me right before I sat Shiva for somebody. And it took, my hair felt so grown out by the time I finished after Shloshin, but there's really nothing I could do. It really is unkempt. Um, no concerts or pleasure trips. Right now you're leaving the home and showering only is needed. Not everybody follows that, but you can take showers. But again, we're not about pleasure bathing. Now in the nine days, it's interesting. The whole theme of food has continued. If here we don't eat or drink in the nine days, no meat or wine, meat, meeting chicken. Now this is not relevant for vegetarians or vegans or pescatarians, but for the more majority of people, meat or, and wine, of course, everybody might or might not. So we don't have meat or chicken, or wine, or grape juice, except for Shabbat during the nine days, which is a level of reducing the joy. Just by saying that's the custom, that's a statement. And being careful, like I already know I bought extra tofu for next week and um, you know other things that I know I'd want to eat next week. No swimming, no washing of clothing, no freshly laundered clothing, no listening to music. Showers only as needed. Now I want to say music during the year of a person who's in mourning, it's very, it's, it differs from person to person, but there are a lot of, a lot of customs about not listening to music, not for sure, not live music, but even recorded music. Some people don't listen to recorded music the whole year. Some people just until the 30 days are up and during Shiva for sure not. And then the year of mourning, again, you're seeing how this is lessening as time goes on. <clears throat> we don't attend weddings unless like it's a wedding of a child or your own wedding. Refrain from social gatherings as a rule, like you go to a breach, but you don't stay for the meal. And you refrain from concerts because that's live music. During the three weeks, this is how we started off. There's no getting married in general. Um, Spardims, people from Spardic backgrounds, some of them do not hold in the three weeks. This is an Ashkenazic list. <laughs> no haircuts, refrain from saying Shekhiano, that special blessing on new fruit or new clothing minimal social gatherings, and no concerts or musicals. So before I continue, I would, is that clear? Is there questions or thoughts? It's not going to exactly, exactly mirror each other, but there's a framework that feels very similar. And are people understanding this idea of the flow of starting from, let's get used to this idea of grieving, and then it gets more and more until it culminates in Tisha B'Av. Any just pausing for a moment for questions. <clears throat> no questions, but just, wow, I never put, made the connection between, you know, morning and the three weeks and everything. It's, it's, it's a mind blown right now. Thank you so much. I'm glad. Yeah. The first time you hear it, it almost becomes obvious. Like, wait, how did I not see that? I mean, I remember feeling that when I was first taught it. Oh, that makes so much sense. It's old morning versus new morning. It's flipping, you know, the flipping the model, but it's, um, 
the first time I agree with you, Nicholas, the first time it's like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> it's not just, oh, it's the three weeks. What do we do? No, there's a reason. There's a thought. There's a process behind it. There's a, there's a modeling. It was very, very thoughtful of our stages. And it's interesting, Sarah, because you said how Judaism does the morning so well. And I agree with you. And I think it does the three weeks very well in the same way by making this communal old morning, making it meaningful by bringing us together in these ways, by saying, oh, we all know there's not going to be a wedding then. We're going to get a haircut before the three weeks. I just now, before I left the house, I uh, my apartment, I threw in a, a load of laundry because I knew that I'm as far, you know, unless something has a stain and you have to get, you know, I'm not saying there are always exceptions or if you have children or young children who need, you know, clothing, you can always launder it. But in general, we don't wash clothing because that brings me joy, may not bring other people joy, but having freshly laundered clothing feels good on the skin. And we try not to have that. We don't take something that's freshly dry cleaned. We don't do that. We also don't do creative work like knitting, embroidering, and things like that. That's Those are things that actually bring us joy. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who has you know, depression or anxiety and needs it to calm them down. I want to make it clear. When we're talking about health, or other reasons, that's off the table. That's, that's and you know, we can always find leniencies for that. Somebody said, you know, I, I can't get through the day without something to distract me. I need to knit. I'd say, of course, you're doing it for a different reason. But I'm, but usually the halakha covers the vast majority, the, the 80% of people. So it's interesting, the thing about eating meat or chicken, that doesn't cover everybody anymore. And I wouldn't say to a pescatarian, you can't have fish because according to halakha, that is not one of the, the signs of joy eating fish for whatever reason joy was associated with me probably because people could not afford it but we all know that there's a certain percentage of the population who never eat meat or chicken and there are a lot of people who don't drink i mean i i rarely drink alcohol and i certainly don't need to drink it during the nine days or grape juice all right um okay the next thing i wanted to bring in is that in some ways I just want to ask Eddie, is this an hour usually up to an hour? I, I didn't ask that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm just pacing myself. I want to leave a few minutes at the end to think about takeaways for ourselves. Um, in some ways, this Avelut Yeshana, which means old morning, can feel more stringent than Avelut Hadasha, new morning. So I think part of that is because we already feel the sadness with new morning. But one of the... Um, guidelines of our sages is you're not allowed to be excessively mournful for new morning. You shouldn't be, and I'm going to share uh, my screen about that. Whereas for old morning, meaning the temple, basically, there is no limit. Our rabbis taught, weep not for the dead, neither bemoan him or her. What does that mean? Weep not for the dead. This is from, this is from the Gemara. So the Gemara is elucidating a, a pasuk, a verse from Jeremiah. Do not weep for the dead in excess or bemoan beyond measure. How is that applied? The first three days of Shiva are for weeping, seven for lamenting, and 30 to refrain from cutting the hair and donning pressed clothes. And we're not actually supposed to add to that. We don't continue after Shiva to sit on a low stool. We don't continue after Shloshim to refrain from cutting the hair. We don't continue after the year to not go to weddings. We don't, in fact, according to the halakha, you're not allowed to because they don't want people to spend their whole life in mourning. But for the temple, this is from Yirmiyahu, thus said, call the dirge women to come and send for the wise women to come. This was, I guess, a role that People had to, women had to keen and to cry. In fact, I saw this at a funeral. Um, I mean, on 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 the computer on the internet in South America or in Mexico. I'm not exactly sure where. Where they actually had women on their way on the funeral, and their their role was to cry and lament and keen a real keening. And crying was so interesting to me. I I found that really fascinating. Let them come quickly, and raise up a wailing for us. Let our eyes run with tears, and our and and our eyes gush with water. And this is something that we read. If you look down, oh no, it's not here. It's in another one, but I put on a comment. We actually read this, the Haftorah on the Shabbat, which is before Tisha B'Av. We read it in Shul. We read it after from the, that's the reading that's done from the prophets after the 
Torah reading. And it never ends. I mean, think about it. We do this year after year after year, and we're actually supposed to cry. We are supposed to cry. There's no mitzvah commandment to cry over the loss of a loved one. There is actually a strong custom or suggestion or guideline to actually cry. And there are many places where, where people read keynote, which I think are called elegies. I think that's the right word in English, I believe, or lamentations. They are very sad liturgical poems, which we read on Tisha B'Av. And you're welcome, anybody, if you want to reach out and join the Zoom for our show, our synagogue is going to be doing it. And different people are going to introduce the keynote, explain them, and then read. And not all of them, just about 14. There are many, many, many more than that. But we pick selected ones because it's really hard to do that all day long. Although the same Rav Soloveitchik, that same sage from the previous century, he used to do it all day. It was amazing. <clears throat> we... The, um, some there were some places that I've heard where people say the keynote in a crying voice. They actually cry when they say it. It's it's like a, I mean they don't might not have tears running down, but they they say it in a keening, sad, very very like really sobbing. I've really heard like as if they would say you know, go you know if they were reading this in Hebrew, they actually cry. And I, the first time I heard it, I was a little bit shocked because I'd never heard that because it feels like put on, but it's it's put on, but it's not really put on. This is what we're supposed to do is to cry. And the reason is, as the Rav explains, that new morning, new morning is part of life. It's a natural, sadly. I mean, the most natural is that we lose our parents. Obviously, we never want to lose a child and losing a sibling is somewhat natural and as people get older, this is a part of life. There is nobody who lives forever. But the old morning, we always need to refresh and rekindle our sadness because that was not natural. That should not have happened. And it happened because the Jews really did not behave well with each other, did not respect each other, did not show enough love and dignity and caring for each other. And uh, each temple for a different reason, was destroyed. You know, there were other things that were, Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, he castigates the Jews for taking slaves and not letting them go, for example. And they finally did it after years after they were supposed to. And that same day, they brought them back. That same day, they forced the slaves to come back. I mean, it was really, you know, it's it just was awful. And there was something called Sinat Chinam, baseless hatred, which sadly we see today as well, that people, and I'm, I'm talking specifically Jews against other Jews, although of course it's, it's true about other nations as well and about how Jews might be to other nations, but specifically that's why the temples were destroyed. And that is not natural. That should not have happened. We should be doing a tikkun for that, which is what I'd like to lead to towards the end. I want to read, uh, wait one second. I wanted to tell you about two, two uh, customs from my own home growing up. So as children, my father, who, as I said, it was his yard yesterday, passed away 27 years ago. He would teach us halakha, Jewish law, every Shabbat at the meal. So he always taught us about whatever was happening at that time. Before the three weeks even started, he was already pulling out the Shulchan Aruch or the Mishnah Bura, which are codes of Jewish law, and reading to us and teaching us about the three weeks, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do, and then the nine days, and then Tisha B'Av. So we always knew about it, even though it was summertime, we weren't in school, but we, we knew about it because my father taught us. My mother had a brilliant idea during the nine days. You know, how did children feel the nine days? I mean, what, what you know, the, we didn't care that we didn't have meat or drink wine. Obviously, we weren't drinking wine anyway. And having meat or chicken. So my mother made us other delicious food, you know, whatever it was. We didn't notice that it was, you know, tuna casserole and afterwards something else, whatever it was. I, I don't remember um, what we had. So during the nine days, we did not have dessert. We were not given dessert except on Shabbat during the nine days. And I remember that. I remember that that was that full week plus that we just didn't get, you know, the ice cream for dessert or the pudding or whatever it was that she used to give us for dessert. And she made a point of it, which I thought was just a brilliant way of bringing it home to children, which again goes back to this idea. If you can't do one of them, like fasting, find another way to bring, to feel the sadness and to connect with community. 
And my father, Allah Shalom, had a different minhag. The Shabbat after Tisha B'Av is called Shabbat Nachamu. It's named after the Haftorah, which is Nachamu, Nachamu Ami, my, Nachamu, my nation should be comforted. And I mean, he called it Shabbos Nachamu because in Israel I call it Shabbat, but in America very often people say Shabbos. So Shabbos Nachamu, he always gave us a little teeny gift. Each child received a little gift that my father, who was a very busy man and traveled a lot for work, made a point of buying one year. It was t-shirts for everybody. One year I got an umbrella that was cool. It was a see-through umbrella, which was a new thing, a bubble umbrella. Every year was something else. And we waited all the time for Shabbos Nachamu presents. So you can imagine that during the three weeks, we knew that the morning period was over because we got Shabbos Nachamu presents. And those were two ways of bringing it home to children and finding a way to really have us understand the morning and the end of mornings. Any questions or thoughts before I continue? Okay, feel free to unmute and say something if you'd like. All right, going on with just the last sources here. The Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law says, It is proper for every God-fearing person to feel pain and anguish over the destruction of the temple. And the way, I'm just adding an addendum here, and the way to do it is by starting with the three weeks and working your way up and really being thoughtful, maybe reading articles or watching a movie about it or thinking about it and spending time feeling the morning. So it, you really have a three-week period to do this, not just one day of Tisha B'Av. The last thing here I wanted to share is that the, the temple actually burned for two days when it was lit on fire and it was burned. Burned on 9th and the 10th, towards the middle of the 10th day, Asara B'Av, which by the way, as I said, because we don't commemorate Tisha B'Av on Shabbat, we, don't, we fast on Sunday, by the time Tisha B'Av is finished, the 10th day has finished completely. So pretty much all restrictions are lifted because we tend to um, we tend to keep restrictions to the middle of the 10th day because of the burning. But even on the 9th of Av, by the middle of the day, the burning was lessened and therefore we get up from sitting on the floor. And in fact, people who wear a talis, a talit and tefillin don't put them on in the morning again because of our sadness but they do for mincha, for the afternoon service. And you can start preparing food for post-fast. In fact, I know women, I happen to know women, but it's from the community, who clean their house and wash the floor after midday in anticipation of the redemption. And that speaks directly to what two people here spoke about, the hope, the yearning, the longing, and the hope that what we're doing with our fasting and mourning will actually bring about redemption from God. These customs also signify our hope that God has vented God's anger on the temple, not on us, the Jewish people. We will be able to see the final redemption soon. And this is a picture of the model of the third temple in Israel. I think it was in the Holy Land. I don't know where it is today. Any thoughts before I... Hey, Carol. Any thoughts, comments before I move on to one, two more things? No? What I was thinking of is that this feels like a time. Oh, wait, there's one more quote that I want to just give me a moment. Ah. Okay, so this is a final thought about the loss of the temple. But Rev. Stephen Exler, who's the senior rabbi in my synagogue in, at the Hebrew Institute, he wrote this a while ago. The goal of Jewish life is celebrating and emphasizing life, but mourning and death are part of it as well. And three weeks out of the year are geared towards experiencing collective national loss and entering that emotional religious space. Even if it doesn't rattle or shake you to realize that there were centuries upon centuries of Jewish communities for whom this one place represented the presence of God in their lives, remember that this was a place where mourners came, where bridegrooms came. It was the central hub of communal Jewish life. And the sense of that locus becoming vulnerable is an awareness that even the things we hold most sacred can be violated in this world. Even the most sacred things in society can be ruptured their physical presence gone. And that brings me to this thought that I put into the blurb. That is the idea that we have so many other losses and mourning that we could think about. 
things that have to do with loss of autonomy. For example, the whole repeal of the Roe versus Wade and the fact that there are many states where women now do not have the autonomy or will not have, I don't know exactly where it stands today, to decide if they need or want an abortion, whether it is for mental health or for physical health or for whatever reason that needs to be, that's, that's a mourning that we go through. There's a mourning about loss of safety and security. People, if we don't feel safe and secure in our shoals, in our synagogues or in our communities or in our schools where there's been so many acts of violence, um, loss of freedom for many people in this world. I'm thinking about Ukraine. I just read something that just totally broke my heart. People who left Ukraine because they left because of the bombing, but they, they couldn't make it. They didn't have the money. They didn't have a job in another country. They didn't have, so they ended up coming back home and some of them were then killed because of the bombing and shelling. And that is a huge, huge loss what's going on in Ukraine. Huge. I mean, it's just, it's hard to even, it's hard to even name it and to encompass it because it's just really so awful what's going on there. So what I wanted to suggest to this group is that each of us think of something that we care about. There's so many things that we care about. We can offer money. We can offer time. We can offer volunteering. We could write a letter to somebody. We could join APAC if Israel is our thing. There were so many different ways that we could help with the Tikkun Olam. And I wanted to offer this idea that now during the nine days that each of us can find one thing, one thing, whatever that one thing is, it could be listening to podcasts about something. It could be enlightening ourselves about what is going on. It could be... I, I think it's endless, especially with social media. There are so many different ways. But I think each one of us could find one thing that we really, really care about. One thing, really one thing. And then find a way to make a movement forward that will make us feel, not, not that makes us feel better in the sense that, oh, we're absolved, but makes us feel better in the sense that we're doing something to improve this world. We're doing something to make something better to do a tikkun. None of us can fix the whole world. None of us can repair the whole world. But all of us can do at least one thing. Just one thing. If anybody would like to comment on that idea of the losses or mourning or one thing you'd like to do, you're welcome to. Um, think about it for a moment. Let's, I want to have a moment. Give people a few seconds you can put in the chat or if you'd like to share. And um, I will conclude with singing at least part of the final kina that we sing on Shabbat. Yes, Sarah. So, so I have a question, which is, sure. you know, in terms of this model that you've laid out um, and bringing it around to what's going on in the world now is the immediacy. It's the country, it's the paradox of in, in dealing with these griefs of the immediacy, these are all new and ongoing and know and in sight within our living, our lifetimes. And yet the, the, the cocooning is not, you know, it's, it's, we need to be out there and engaged, even if it's doing that one thing that we can do, you know? So um, I'd just be interested in any comment that you could offer into that. So I'm not sure. I, I, can you just say again? You're saying well, you're taking in, a time in the, mo in, in, the yeah. in the model. You're saying you know in, in the the immediacy of new grief was something ah, where we were cocooned okay. and we yeah. entered a period of time. Now the immediacy requires us to be out in the world and engaged. So thank you. I, I'm and you'll let me know if I'm answering what you brought. That's that's very thoughtful. I think what I'm offering is something in between the old and the new. The old the the old morning, there are three weeks set aside. It's 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 impossible to always spend 365 days a year mourning. I mean if one does then one doesn't really live life very often. So it's really hard to take all these causes and to think about them all the time. But if we're already taking a time of old mourning, and what we're mourning to me is the way we acted, the Jews acted, which brought to the destruction. So to me, this feels like a time, let's set aside a little bit of time. Not everybody can work on social justice and social action every minute of the day. We're busy, we're working, we're, we have families, we, we, we have so many things that are going on in our lives. I'm, I'm suggesting that 
these things that are happening now, but they're not necessarily immediate. I mean, Roe versus Wade is a little bit not immediate anymore. It happens already. Like the first shock was awful for me, maybe not for everybody here. Or Ukraine at the beginning, it was just overwhelming. And we had rallies or get togethers every week. Now we do it every month because we can't sustain that. So I think it's a little bit in the middle between new and old, but this is my personal suggestion that we use this time when we're already being thoughtful, when we're already thinking about how how there was an opposite of tikkun olam, that this might be a time to think of what we can do to bring tikkun olam. That's, it's not, it's not anywhere in the literature. It was just my thought that it felt like, it felt like a good time to do it. We're already taking a little bit of a step back from the joys of the world or more of a step back. This might be a good time to think of what we can do to, to bring some tikkun. Thank I you. hope that answers your question, Sarah. Thank you. I was very thoughtful. I hadn't even thought about it till you framed it that way. Wait, it's not old, it's not new. What are you talking about? But I, I think it actually could bridge a little bit. Thank you. So thank you. Um, anybody else want to share? Hi. Hi, Nicholas. Yeah. Um, you know, as your talk, when you got to that point about the baseless hatred, which is something that always stood out to me and resonated with me because of the current situation, specifically within Jewry that we're living in with the baseless hatred between us, as you were talking, you connected me to something. It was a quote from um, Rabbi Soloveitchik. I'm putting it into my words because I don't, can't remember um, verbatim what it is, but basically he said that, you know, the events in the, uh, of the Tanakh are not just historical events. It's happening in every moment of nice. the day. And us, you know, reflecting on the destruction of the temple and the cause of it, baseless hatred, it really is a moment, these three weeks, to, to step back and look at, as, as you said, as you pull Tikkun Olam into it, really to reflect on what we're doing individually to, to add to baseless hatred. And, and you know, I... What, we, what we're doing to detract from, or what detract, we are doing... Right. What the world is doing, what we can do to, to kind of to repair yeah, it. Yeah. And, and even what I'm doing, like un, yeah, unconsciously. To, yes, to oh, that's to another good hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. To be more yeah. aware. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Sorry, yeah. so I'm holding back what I said. So actually you're saying the flip side is also to think, be more thoughtful about our own actions. And we're yeah. Oh, very nice. That's a nice. Yeah. I appreciate so that's that. my, my takeaway from everything. Thank, thank, you. thank you so much, Robin. Um, thank you. And I want to conclude. I, uh, do we have one more minute or do you stop a hard stop at 1230? Eddie, I don't want to take more time. You, you can take one more minute. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to leave everyone with this tune, which is very synonymous with keynote with these sad liturgical lamentations. And it's actually often sung in Shul Friday night for Lachado D. Actually, the Rav, Rav Soloveitchik said, you're not allowed to use this tune for Lachado D because, or he, he thought you shouldn't, because he said, we don't have public mourning on Shabbat. And this is such, uh, this is so associated with mourning, but still most shall sing it. Vial biat mechar feel, betoch mikdash kadareha. Alei galut mechar feel, nei mechir ze mareha. Vial damam masher shupach, kemo me me yeoreha. Alei hegion mecholeha. Asher damam beareha. Vial vaad asher shamam. Uvitul Sanhedreha, a lazy pretimideha, Ufid your neighborhoreha, Vialchilul Kelehal, U Misbeach Ketoreha, a late pay melacheha, Bene David Gevireha, Vial Yofiamma Sherha Shach, Beet Saru Ketareha, a lechavoda Shergala. Beet Hoban de Vireha, Vial Lochets Asher Lachats, Besam Sakim Hagoreha, Alehe Machats Verov Makot, Asher Hukunezireha, Vial Niputsal Ele Sela, Avileha Neareha, 
עלי שמחת משנאה, בסך כמל שבריה, ויעל עינוי בני חורין, נדיבה טהוריה, עלי פשע אשר אבתה, סלו הול דרך אשוריה, ויעל צבעות קהליה, שזובה שחוריה, עלי קולות מחרפיה, פי עת רבו פגריה, ויעל רגשת מגדפיה, בתוך משכן חצריה, עלי שמחה אשר חולל, בפי קמי מצריה, ויעל טחן יצפו לך, כשוב ושמע אמריה. עלי ציון ויעריה, כמו אישה בצעיריה, וכיבתו לך הגורת שק על בעל נעוריה. Sending love. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing and listening and making this a thoughtful space. Thank you, Eddie and Jessica and Rav Shmuley for putting this together. It was an honor. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbanit. That was amazing. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we hope to see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you.